episode of the Vexillogicast. Coming to you from the city of brotherly love, I'm Simon the Cannibal. After much deliberation, I've decided to focus on the early history of the flag of the United States of America to kick this series off. My reasons for this are threefold. First, I've already done all the necessary research, as I've given a nerd night talk on this exact subject. Second, I felt you would all appreciate it if I released an episode within a couple weeks of the announcement, rather than taking the full amount of time I budgeted. And third, being based not only in the U.S., but also in the city of creation of this flag, I thought it was appropriate as a starting point. Before I jump into the episode proper, I wanted to remind you where to go for show notes and discussion. Show notes and other information will live, thrive, and survive at vexillogicast.com, that is V-E-X-I-L-L-O-G-I-C-A-S-T, vexillogicast.com, uh, which will, in turn, have links to the Reddit forum of r slash Cannibal, which I will use as the main discussion area. If you already subscribe to that subreddit, you won't need to take any further action, as I'll put a duplicate list of show notes up there as well. Alright, I'm going to start by making the assumption that you are all familiar with the 50-star, 13-stripe U.S. flag currently in use. Interestingly, this is not the only official U.S. flag. It is my understanding that all previous official versions of the flag are still considered to be valid, similar to how all past U.S. currency is still legal tender, though you may be hard-pressed to find someone using their half-cent piece at face value. Anyhow, if you're not familiar with the current flag of the United States, I recommend you look it up now as I'm going to use it as a reference point for the rest of this episode. First on our list today is the Grand Union flag. Now, I want you to call up an image in your mind of what the first official flag of the United States looked like. Does this flag you're thinking of have stars? If so, I'm afraid you've been duped. The first flag of the U.S., which was in use from 1775 to 1777, was a modified British Red Ensign. Think of our current flag, but instead of a blue field with white stars in the canton, you have the British Union flag of 1606. As a reminder, that's the one that looks like the current Union flag, but doesn't have the red diagonals. That is to say, a white on blue St. Andrew saltire with a fimbriated red St. George's cross on top. The Grand Union flag holds three main points of interest to me beyond being a first. It is interesting as a symbol of a reluctant revolution, it is interesting as an exploration of vexillographic realities, and it is interesting by humorous coincidence. This flag is an obvious symbol of a population torn between loyalty to their mother country and their desire for a separate identity. By keeping the Union flag in the canton, instead of creating an entirely different flag, the colonists wittingly or unwittingly displayed their preference for systematic reform rather than outright revolution. I'll spare you the details, as that is a podcast series on its own, in fact, for those of you interested in learning more about the American Revolution, might I recommend Mike Duncan's fantastic podcast, Revolutions, specifically the second uh, series? Section? Whatever. I'll have a link in the show notes. The physical flag is also a reminder of vexillographical limitations. How do you quickly equip scores of town militias across the entire length of the United States with a standard flag? The answer? You have to modify a flag they all have access to anyway, the British Red Ensign. Nearly every merchant ship in the colonies had a Red Ensign, sometimes referred to as a Red Duster. It was the flag of the British Merchant Marine, used to identify them at sea. This flag could be easily modified by adding six white strips of cloth, turning it into the Grand Union flag. A final note on the use of British ensigns, red, white, and blue. Due to their ubiquity, many former British colonies still use a defaced ensign as their national flag, 
example, Gracia, New Zealand, and Australia, or did so in the past, as with Canada and India. Finally, as a humorous coincidence, especially considering the hold many consider corporations to have on our modern nation, the Grand Union flag has the same basic appearance as the flag of the British East India Company, the privately held London-based corporation that ruled India from about 1757 to 1858. The Betsy Ross flag is probably what you'll know as the first American flag, and what popped up in your mind earlier. It has a very weird history, all things considered, that is, fraught with contention. When Congress decided to ditch the British Union flag in the Canton and adopt something new, they ended up picking 13 stars on a blue field, which I'll discuss in a minute. As this was not the top priority, they were, after all, in the middle of a war, they didn't specify much on the exact design. Many people were commissioned to sew new flags, among them was a Philadelphia resident, Betsy Ross. Fast forward to the mid-1800s. Citizens of the United States began trying to find any connection they could with the American Revolution, especially as a way to exclude Irish and other immigrant groups. Amidst this nativist fever, although not necessarily part of it, the descendants of Betsy Ross began promoting their link to the Revolution, receipts for flags sewn for the Continental Congress. As they dug through the history, they also found a popular version of the U.S. flag with 13 stars in a circle, which they quickly ascribed to Betsy. Armed with flags, receipts, and a patriotic fever, they promulgated this history, concocting stories of personal meetings with George Washington and all sorts of too-good-to-be-true details. A nation open to creating a national mythology adopted these stories, much as they did the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, Paul Revere riding alone to warn of the quote-unquote British, and Molly Pitcher manning, or should I say womaning, the cannons. What we do know is this. Stars in a Circle was a possible arrangement for the new flag. Betsy Ross did sew flags for this new nation, and it is entirely possible, due to her proximity to Congress, that she sewed the first one of the new batch. That all being said, it is fairly difficult to assert anything beyond that. Speaking of assertions, though, Francis Hopkinson claimed to have designed the first American flag with stars. Generally known as the Hopkinson flag, the arrangement of five or six-sided stars in rows of 3-2-3-2-3 was also popular. This is fairly uninteresting on its own, but once again, we have three major points that turn this into something more than just another historical flag. The arrangement of the stars, the dispute between Hopkinson and the Continental Congress, and the very fact that the states were represented by stars in the first place. When I show people this flag, they often remark that the pattern of stars looks obviously inspired by the UK flag. While it was probably unintentional, the pattern chosen does, indeed, look like a connect-the-dots version of the UK flag at the time. Unfortunately, I've not read much about Francis Hopkinson, except from a pro-Commodore Berry piece, which did not paint Hopkinson in a good light. His alleged politicking may have delayed and otherwise hampered the efforts of a fledgling United States Navy. That being said, the 1780 government felt that it was reasonable to compensate him for his efforts designing a flag and other national service, though would later renege on that and decide that he was already duly compensated as his work was done, quote-unquote, on the job while working for the United States. He asked for, by the way, among other things, a quarter cask of wine for designing the U.S. flag. Finally, possibly apocryphally, Francis Hopkinson was known to be a devoted follower of David Rittenhouse, an astronomer and learned man many would have put right up there with Ben Franklin for his scientific achievements. Indeed, they were colleagues and both served as president of the American Philosophical Society. Armed with this and Rittenhouse's rhetoric casting the United States as a quote-unquote new constellation among nations of the earth, 
It is suggested that the stars on a blue field we are all familiar with is a nod towards Rittenhouse and his achievements. Our penultimate flag of this episode is the Serapis flag, which is one of the first flags to represent the United States internationally. This one requires a bit more description, so I'll let Ben Franklin do the talking. Quote, It is with pleasure that we acquaint your excellency that the flag of the United States of America consists of 13 stripes, alternately red, white, and blue. A small square in the upper angle next to the flagstaff is a blue field with 13 white stars denoting a new constellation. Unquote. You should note that there are blue stripes on this flag, and the stars, although not specified here, were sewn with eight points and arranged in horizontal rows of four, five, four. Also, there's that talk of a new constellation again. The Serapis flag, also known as the John Paul Jones flag for his use of it, and the Franklin flag, due to the above quote, is a product of the difficulties of describing images with text and delays before the advent of electronic communication. As both Jones and Franklin did not yet know what the exact official symbol of the United States was, they had to come up with something that would be easily recognizable by the international community. Jones faced this problem acutely, as his capture of the British ship HMS Serapis had resulted in the sinking of his own USS Bonhomme Richard, and with it all national insignia. By the way, this battle provided us with the immortal quote, Sir, I have not yet begun to fight. Jones, needing to repair the ship, headed to the waters around the Netherlands. While there, the British tried to use legal means to have the Dutch sink his ship. As he was commanding a captured ship with no known national insignia, he was to be considered a pirate. Jones, with help from U.S. diplomats, fashioned a legally recognizable flag so the Dutch and other neutral powers would not be legally compelled to sink his ship. Its departure from what we know as quote-unquote the United States flag has made it a popular symbol of the revolution. As a final note, outside of its use to commemorate the early U.S. Navy, John Paul Jones, and the U.S. Revolution generally, it is occasionally used as a symbol of Ben Franklin due to his correspondence, which I quoted earlier. This is most conspicuous at the Franklin Institute of Philadelphia, where one can find a pair of these flags in the antechamber as you enter the building. If you've visited vexillogicast.com, you've seen a photo I took of this and the Philadelphia flag at the Franklin Institute. Our final flag of this episode is also a song, the Star Spangled Banner. The Star Spangled Banner refers both to a specific flag and the style of flag that was immortalized in Francis Scott Key's poem. Similar in appearance to the Hopkinson flag, the Star Spangled Banner has 15 five-pointed stars in offset rows of three, and more interestingly, 15 horizontal stripes. This 15-star, 15 15-stripe 15 flag served as the national flag of the United States for longer than all but the 48- and 50-star variants. That would be 23 years for this 15-star flag, 47 years for the 48-star flag, and 54 years for our current 50-star flag as of this recording. Its notable extra two stripes show it for what it is, uh, the flag of a young nation still sorting out its identity. No new stars, or thankfully stripes, were added until the Flag Act of 1818, which bumped the stars to 20, lowered the stripes to 13, and began our current policy of adding a new star for a new state, effective on the 4th of July of the year of admission. No discussion of this flag would be complete without talking about its most famous physical copy, the flag that flew over Fort McHenry in Baltimore, alternately called the Star Spangled Banner, as we have today, or the Great Garrison Flag. This massive 30 by 42 foot flag was commissioned by the forge commander such that they had, quote, a flag so large that the British would have no difficulty seeing it from a distance, unquote. And it definitely lives up to that. Each stripe is about two feet tall. This is the flag Francis Scott Key wrote about in September 1814.
Furthermore, the poem, song, and national anthem this flag inspired deserves a word or two. While I won't rehash the full creation myth or other common elements regarding its lifespan and eventual adoption as the national anthem, I did want to bring up one little known point. As written by Francis Scott Key, the Star Spangled Banner is four verses long. The first verse, the one we're all familiar with, ends in a non-rhetorical question. Does that flag still wave? The following verses detail the greater struggle in the War of 1812 and answers the question. I highly recommend reading Isaac Asimov's short essay on the song, entitled All Four Stances, which I will either link to or just straight up host on vexillogicast.com if you're interested in learning more. Alright, I think it's about time to wrap it up. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new. As I mentioned earlier, show notes and other information can be found at vexillogicast.com, and again, that is V-E-X-I-L-L-O-G-I-C-A-S-T, vexillogicast. And discussion can be found on the subreddit r slash Simon the Cannibal. You can also find me on Twitter, at Cannibal underscore Simon. Best wishes, and see you next week. (laughs) 